0: Victim's Rights, Chapter 17 Emptying the Prisons Slowly Then his lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all thy debt, because thou desirest me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his lord was wrath and delivered him to the tormentors, till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one of his brother their trespasses. Matthew eighteen, thirty two through thirty five. Debtor's Prison, one of the horrors of any humanist age, The governments of the West closed them only in the final third of the 19th century. They had obviously existed as early as Jesus' era. But they did not exist in the Old Testament. Why did Jesus use the debtor's prison as his example of God's eternal punishment? Was he sanctioning the creation of an institution unknown to Old Testament Israel? No. On the contrary, he was demonstrating that until the Day of Judgment, God is merciful to men allowing them to make restitution to their victims and to God for their sins. God keeps open the door for men to affirm the only restitution payment suitable in God's court of final judgment, personal faith in the atoning, restitution paying, work of Jesus Christ on Calvary. Just as the rich Lord allowed his servant time to pay off his enormous debt, so should this servant have allowed his debtor time to pay off a much smaller debt. There is no doubt what this passage teaches. Once you are thrown into the cosmic debtor's prison of hell, there is no escape. Each person's debts are too large. There is only one way to get them paid off, payment by one's kinsman-redeemer. But this is available only while a person is alive in this world. Thus the imagery of the Old Testament's kinsman redeemer who bought his kinsmen out of servitude, Leviticus twenty five, forty seven through forty nine, was basic to Christ's message regarding his own role in history. In Israel there was no prison system. Egypt had prisons, Israel did not. Why not? Because prisons do not offer adequate opportunities for criminals to repay their victims. A prison restricts the criminal's ability to make restitution, and restitution is the very essence of biblical punishment. Prisons restrict men's ability to repay. They also make it difficult for men to exercise dominion over nature. There is no restitution to victims by those in hell or in the lake of fire. There is permanent restitution to God, but not to man. In this sense, hell is outside history and the process of restitution and restoration. The debtor of the parable is cast into prison until every last payment is made. The debtor could get out only if someone else paid his obligations. Clearly, this is a picture of Christ's payment of his people's ethical debts to God as kinsman-redeemer. This substitute payment is available to mankind only in history. Thus, the prison is illegitimate because it represents a denial of history and the opportunities of history. That Egypt should have prisons is understandable. Egyptians had a static view of time. Israel did not. The parable should have taught men not to construct debtors' prisons, but men generally refused to listen carefully to Christ's parables. They went on building them until very recent times. Instead of debtors' prisons, the Old Testament created a system of lifetime servitude or slavery. Victims could get immediate cash when the court sold the thief into slavery. Convicted criminals were allowed to work off their obligations. When the debt was paid to the buyer, the criminal went free. Unlike the debtor in prison who had no work and hoped only in the rich relative who might pay his debt, the criminal in the Old Testament had hope in the possibility of buying his way out of slavery by hard work. He learned the skills of liberty and prosperity in the very bondage of punishment. But modern man believes that he is wiser than God. He has become the classic wise guy. He sees slavery as a terrible evil, so he relies on prisons to do the work of restoration. A Recent Invention The prison as a correctional and rehabilitative institution was the invention of the early 19th century reform movement in the United States. Visitors from all over Europe came to see these correctional wonders. The most famous of these visitors was Alexis de Tocqueville, who came from France in 1831 to see our prisons, and who then wrote the most insightful study of American institutions in the 19th century, which also became the earliest major work in the discipline of sociology, Democracy in America, 1835-1840. He and his colleague, Gustave de Beaumont, produced a famous report on their observations on the penitentiary system in the United States, 1833. Parallel tax-supported institutions were developed during the same era, the insane Asylum, the Orphanage, the Reformatory for Youthful Delinquents, and the large-scale public almshouse. It was also the era of the first religiously neutral, humanistic, tax-supported day schools in the United States, David Rothman writes, Americans in the colonial period had followed very different procedures. They relieved the poor at home or with relatives or neighbors. They did not remove them to almshouses. They fined or whipped criminals or put them in stocks or, if the crime was serious enough, hung them. They did not conceive of imprisoning them for specific periods of time. The colonists left the insane to the care of their families, supporting them, in case of need, as one of the poor. They did not erect special buildings for incarcerating the mentally ill. Similarly, homeless children lived with neighbors, not in orphan asylums. The few institutions that existed in the 18th century were clearly places of last resort. Americans in the Jacksonian period reversed these practices. Institutions became places of first resort, the preferred solution to the problems of poverty, crime, delinquency, and insanity. Western Europe abandoned debtors' prisons during the decade 1867 through 1777. Legislators at last recognized that it did victims no good to see a debtor cast into prison until he paid, since he could not earn his way out. It is not coincidental that Europe passed such legislation in the same era that the United States and Russia abolished slavery, another system that also did not provide a way for people to buy their way out. The Concentration Camp The ultimate earthly prison is the concentration camp. While the modern Soviet camp has economic functions, the cruelty of long sentences is obvious. Under Stalin, these sentences were incredibly grotesque. As many as 30 million people were sent into the camps, never to return. The magnitude of the crime against humanity seems irrationally cruel. They were irrational, according to Solzhenitsyn. The first thought of the arrested person was always, Me? What for? From 1934 on, a soldier captured in wartime was given a 10-year sentence upon being freed from the enemy. Encircled military units got 10-year sentences after 1941. Failure to denounce specific evil acts carried an intermediate sentence. Quotas for arrests made the diversity of the camps fantastic, he says. There was no logic to them. A chance meeting with a condemned man could get you 10 years. Owning a radio tube was worth 10 years. In 1948, the average sentence increased to 25 years. Juveniles received 10. The classic story he tells was of a district party conference in Moscow province. At the end of the conference, someone called for a tribute to Stalin. A wave of applause began and continued. Everyone was afraid to be the first person to stop clapping, for fear of being arrested. It went on for 11 minutes. Finally, one man, a factory director, stopped clapping and sat down. Then the whole group immediately stopped and sat down. That night, the man was arrested and given a 10-year sentence. There is only one way to explain this, the desire of the state to become God and to impose hell on earth. It became a goal of state policy to destroy men's lives, to leave them without earthly hope in the future. It was easy to go to jail without a trial. The special boards attached to the secret police, the OSOs, handed down administrative penalties, not sentences. The OSO enjoyed another important advantage in that its penalties could not be appealed. There was nowhere to appeal to. There was no appeals jurisdiction above it, and no jurisdiction beneath it. It was subordinate only to the Minister of Internal Affairs, to Stalin, and to Satan. It is not surprising that the camps became hell on earth. The Chamber of Horrors The prison also creates other horrors, such as homosexuality and training in criminal behavior for the younger inmates by the skilled older inmates. It puts too much power in the hands of guards, who can then indulge their taste in brutality. It puts too much power in the hands of the parole boards, who can shorten a man's sentence irrespective of the crime, thereby making the punishment fit the board's assessment of the criminal, not the judge's assessment of the effects of the crime, or more to the point, making the punishment fit the latest humanistic theory of criminal behavior and social responsibility, not the crime. Left-wing humanists have begun to see the threat to justice posed by the indeterminate sentence. Mitford has described the indeterminate sentence as "...a potent psychological instrument for inmate manipulation and control," The uncertainty ever nagging in the prisoner's mind a far more effective weapon than the cruder ones then, in the 1870s, in vogue, the club, the starvation regime, the iron shackle. Because of doubts regarding the prison as a means of correcting evil behavior, we have seen an increasing resistance by juries and judges to send first offenders or minor offenders to prison. But because restitution has not yet become a common means of punishing criminals, these minor criminals receive no punishment other than having to report occasionally to an overburdened probation or parole officer. A good example of the failure of the parole system is the case of Charles Manson. Manson led the family gang of murderers who killed actress Sharon Tate and several others in 1969. He was on parole from prison at the time. Others in his family were also on probation. As a prosecuting attorney later wrote, Manson associated with ex cons known narcotics users and minor girls. He failed to report his whereabouts, made few attempts to obtain employment, repeatedly lied regarding his activities. During the first six months of 1969 alone, he had been charged, among other things, with grand theft auto, narcotics possession, rape, contributing to the delinquency of a minor. There was more than ample reason for parole revocation. Manson's parole officer stated in court that he could not remember whether Manson had been on probation or parole. The man was responsible for overseeing 150 persons. Manson had actually begged to be allowed to remain in jail when they released him in 1967. At that time, he was 32 years old and had spent 17 years in penal and reform institutions. Humanists look at the eye-for-eye principle and react in horror. They do not react with equal consternation when they confront the problem of the late 20th century's increase in violent crime. Statistics on crime for the United States are readily available and comprehensive, and I am including a brief survey of this material in order to present an overview of the crisis facing Western humanist culture. At the end of an age, we expect to see an increase in criminal behavior as lawlessness becomes a way of life for a dedicated pathological minority. While religious and cultural relativism and self-doubt render citizens and their elected authorities helpless to stem this tide of constant lawlessness. Gilbert Murray, the great student of Greek civilization, characterized the last days of Greek religion as the failure of nerve. This seems to fit late 20th century Western humanism quite well. The prison is a bureaucracy, not a market-oriented institution. It is run by the state through taxes. It is a bureaucratic management system, not a profit management system. Men are trained to follow orders, not to innovate, take risks, and meet market demand. There are many arguments against prisons, as revealed by an enormous bibliography on alternatives to prisons. But the most important one is that they thwart the biblical principle of restitution. Emptying prisons and stoning sons. Prisons need to be emptied. The biblical way to accomplish this is to revive the biblical practices of execution for habitual criminals, Deuteronomy 21.18, corporal punishment, Deuteronomy 25.1-3, and restitution. It is interesting that the justification for executing habitual criminals rests on that bugaboo of all pietism, the execution of the rebellious son. It is a case of, if this, then how much more that— If it is mandatory that a man bring his incorrigible adult son before the elders for gluttony, drunkenness, and verbal rebellion, how much more ready will a society be to execute repeatedly violent individuals or members of a professional criminal class? Remove from the law books the law regarding the civic execution of the rebellious son, and you thereby remove the one and only biblical sanction for executing professional criminals." The three-time loser penalty for American jurisprudence has disappeared. In its place has come a criminal class of far more than three felony convictions, and most of these professionals are paroled early. Incorrigible sons and incorrigible criminals are to be removed from society. So shall thou put evil away from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Deuteronomy 21.21 Rushdoony has identified the importance of this law for society. Such persons were thus blotted out of the commonwealth. When and if this law is observed, ungodly families who are given to lawlessness are denied a place in the nation. The law thus clearly works to eliminate all but godly families. What we find in our day is that Christians despise biblical law almost as much as secular humanists do. They attack the very thought that The stoning of drunken, gluttonous sons, not young children, but adult sons who are living at home with their parents, debauching themselves as some sort of crime against humanity, when stoning them is specifically a civil sanction required by God. Deuteronomy 21, 18-21 The very idea of execution by public stoning embarrasses Christians, despite the fact that public stoning is by far the most covenantally valid form of execution, for God's law requires the witness to cast the first stones, and it also requires representatives of the entire covenantal community to participate directly, rather than hiding the act in a sanitary room in some distant prison. The Bible is clear. The hands of the witness shall be the first upon him to put him to death, and afterward the hands of all the people. So thou shalt put the evil away from among you. Deuteronomy 17.7 The evil of modern impersonalism. Stoning was a communal activity, an aspect of the civil covenant sanctions. It took place outside the town. Leviticus 24.14, Numbers 15.35-36, 1 Kings 21.13 if sentence was passed with the help of eyewitnesses, the witnesses had to begin the execution. Deuteronomy 17:7. 7. This was to discourage frivolous testimonial in court. Boecker argues that, that it was a form of excommunication, and that those stoned were not entitled to burial in the family plot. But he cites no scriptural evidence. For the ancients, the criminal was possessed of A real guilt which jeopardized the community. By covering the evildoer with stones outside the town, the evil that he could spread was banished. This argument is ridiculous. A liberal, self-conscious attempt to reinterpret the Bible's covenantal concepts as magical. The execution of the evildoer was sufficient to stop the spread of his evil. The pile of stones was intended rather to serve as a covenantal reminder. Each pile of stones testified to the reality of covenant sanctions, a monument to God's judgment of cursing in history, just as the stones from the River Jordan were made into a memorial of God's judgment of the deliverance of Israel, Joshua 4, 7-8. Public stoning forces citizens to face the reality of the ultimate civil sanction, execution, which in turn points to God's ultimate sanction at Judgment Day. Stoning also faithfully images the promised judgment against Satan, the crushing of his head by the promised seed, Genesis 3.15. Because most people, including Christians, do not want to think about God's final judgment, they prefer to assign to distant, unknown executioners the grim task of carrying out God's judgment in private. This privatization of execution is immoral. It is itself criminal. It is unjust to the convicted criminal, and it is unjust to the surviving victims who do not see God's justice done in public. The systematic impersonalization of capital punishment is the problem, not capital punishment as such. This deliberate impersonalism has corrupted the entire penal system today. Public stoning would allow a condemned man to confront the witnesses and his executioners. The idea of a private execution where the condemned person cannot have a final word to those who have condemned him is anything but liberal-minded. It was long considered a basic legal privilege in the West for a condemned person to have this final opportunity to speak his mind. The sign of the intolerance of the liberal French revolutionaries was their unwillingness to allow King Louis XVI, to speak to the crowd at his execution. The judges had ordered drummers to begin drumming the moment he began to speak, which they did. Whereas men used to be flogged in public or put in stocks for a few days, we now put them in hidden jails that are filled with a professional criminal class, as well as with aids carrying homosexual rapists. This impersonalism of punishment has been paralleled by a steady, bureaucratization, and institutionalization of the penal system. The guards in prisons tend to become as impersonal and callous as their prisoners. Bukovsky writes of Soviet prisons, There's no real difference between the criminals and the guards, except for the uniforms. The slang is the same, the manners, concepts, psychology, it's all the same criminal world, all joined by an unbreakable chain. The growth of impersonalism has been a problem for the West from the beginning. Even in the days of public executions several centuries ago, the axemen wore a face mask. The Bible does not allow the establishment of a professional taxpayer finance guild of faceless executioners who, over time, inevitably either grow callous and impersonal toward their awful, full of awe, task, or else grow sadistic. Instead, the Bible imposes personal responsibility on members of society at large for enforcing this ultimate sanction. But people in the Christian West have always refused to accept this God-imposed personal responsibility. They prefer to make a lone executioner psychologically responsible for carrying out the sentence rather than participate in this covenantal responsibility as God requires. This refusal to accept personal responsibility by citizens has led to a crisis in Western jurisprudence in the 20th century. Decade by decade, the more consistent haters of God's law have become politically dominant. They have used the same kinds of arguments against capital punishment in general that embarrassed Christians had accepted in their rejection of public stoning. Step by step, society eliminates capital punishment. Men's hatred of God's law is steadily manifested covenantally in modern civil law. Conclusion The prison is a second best device. It does keep some habitual criminals locked up for part of their lives. It is sometimes argued that by keeping them out of circulation, the overall crime rate drops, but only if they are kept in prison. And even this case, there is only spotty evidence. The problem is this. When one criminal is locked up, others move into the vacuum of crime. It may take time for the new entrants to become equally skilled, however. Still, prison is a threat. If a society refuses to execute professional criminals, then it must impose some kind of sanctions if evil is not to be indirectly subsidized. In short, biblical law is a package deal. It will not suffice to empty the prisons until the whole of biblical criminal law is on the law books and enforced, especially the death penalty against rebellious sons. Those who are appalled by this law are not sufficiently appalled by professional criminal behavior. The problem modern society faces is that we no longer honor the three biblical civil sanctions against crime, restitution to victims, flogging, and capital punishment. We no longer think it is moral to sell a criminal into slavery in order to raise money to repay his victims. We no longer believe that such harsh penalties are morally valid but God is not mocked. The result of this hostility to biblical law is a subsidy to the criminal paid for by his victims and potential victims. Taxpayers pay to keep criminals in prison for brief periods, and criminals have learned that in the modern humanist West, crime pays. Few get caught for any given crime. Few who are caught are convicted, and few who are convicted receive stiff sentences. We have created a system of temporary free housing for criminals. Dallas County in Texas is a good example. More people move through the Dallas County criminal justice system than in any other county except California's Los Angeles. Each month, 12,000 people go into the four county jails, and the same number are re- released. Over 80% of them are former occupants of the jail system. They seldom serve more than three months for their two-year to ten-year sentences. Yet all this goes on decade after decade. Nothing changes. Nothing will, except to get worse, unless we return to biblical law. We will see either the tyranny of a political backlash or the ever more lenient handling of prisoners. What we have is a universally acknowledged failure, the prison system. But men prefer failure to biblical law. This is as true of Christians as it is of humanists. They hate biblical law, so they have become the criminal's potential victim. They prefer it this way.